Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Few investors become so well-known that they earn a nickname. Bill Gross was known as the Bond King. A natural polymath, Bill ascended to the throne with his novel total return approach to managing bonds and his outsized personality. He built the PIMCO empire through hard work, ingenuity, and the cult of personality. Some say he lost the throne through a mixture of hubris, distraction, and bad calls. A new book by former Bloomberg reporter Mary Childs describes it all. Now the reporter and host of NPR's Planet Money, Mary has written the book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. It's out now via Flatiron Books. Welcome aboard, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this is an exciting time for you. The book has come out. You have written a book on Bill Gross, who is a particularly, he's both polarizing, lots of people know who he is, but at the same time, he's a little bit under the radar for most of America, I'd say. How did you pick him to write about? (laughs) Part of it was luck. Part of it was just that I was covering PIMCO as my day job. You know, I covered six or seven enormous asset managers when I was a beat reporter at Bloomberg News. And I happened to be there when he left PIMCO in this very dramatic fashion in 2014. And another part of it is he's so reflective. You know, he was a psych major in college. He thinks a lot about his thinking and why he does what he does and why other people do what they do. And also, he has long been motivated by fame as like his driving engine to do everything that he does. And those things kind of add up to give me a wealth of interesting material, right? Like he's he's this captivating, reflective person. And there's decades of public material. And, you know, he was open to doing interviews as well. So I got to really get in there and, and understand what motivates him and how he thinks about things. And it just provided a really kind of fertile ground for this book. So you covered PIMCO for a while. You had access to him, I assume, directly in advance of writing the book. How comfortable was he in dealing with you once you kind of decided to write the book? I think it fluctuated, you know, and I think it depended on how he felt that day, more or less. You know, some days he's feeling confident and his returns are good and he wants to tell me about, you know, interesting things and his best moments. And other days, you know, he had stuff going on in his personal life or his performance wasn't as good or... You know, in later years, you know, we talked a lot in 2017 and then he retired in 2019 and I was kind of deep in the editing process and didn't need to, you know, sit down with him for hours as much. So I wasn't just like bothering him as much at that point. I think he he more or less decided that he wanted to kind of control his own narrative and not just let me do it which I completely understand, you know, who among us. So he ended up actually, once he got the fact-checking questions, I think he saw the basic bones of the book that I was writing. And I really haven't spoken to him directly since then. I think he, you know, he was perfectly nice about fact-checking, but I think he was like, why am I letting her tell my story? Why don't I tell my own? So there are two Bill Gross books out right now. Right. Well, and so it's one of those things where, you know, someone who's driven by fame, they sort of assume different things in the process. And then when the actual process hits them and someone who is probably a control freak anyway, in terms of building their business to sort of seed that over to somebody that I I would guess that would be uncomfortable. Totally. Exactly that. I think a lot of people in the book and in, you know, positions of power throughout the world are not accustomed to not controlling the narrative. And, 
you know, that makes for uncomfortable conversations for journalists every day where everyone's, you know, they're always kind of yelling at us or like trying to tell us that we misunderstood something when we didn't, blah, blah, blah. But at this, Bill's actually like quite good on that count. I have found in my personal experience, you know, he picks his spots. So this isn't universal, but I think that he understands media better than a lot of people. And, you know, he understood also that this was his prerogative. You know, he never like tried to mess with me in any kind of like unethical way, which I actually really appreciate because that's not universal. But I think, yeah, it's really hard when you're a perfectionist, a micromanager, somebody who knows what they like and have been so successful to cede that control. People very much struggle with it, Bill included. Contrasted with some of the other people who ran firms that you covered, he seems like a guy who would pick up the phone and call the author directly, whereas other people would have a PR function and go-betweens and gatekeepers and narrative shapers and things like that. Was that refreshing or did that help inform the choice to cover Bill as opposed to somebody else? I had not really thought of it in such clear terms, but I think that is right, where that lack of intermediation is so useful, where, you know, I perhaps to my detriment, just think that we're all people and I don't necessarily do the kind of deferential dances that you should do maybe in my position, in my job. (laughs) Like I just, I'm like, you're a person, I'm a person. We all like eat cereal. Like, let's just talk. I don't know why cereal, but I feel like Bill is, yes, he'll just email you. If he doesn't like what you said, he'll just be like, Hey, not that. Hey, this is wrong, whatever. And you know, varying degrees of, of tone in that who among us, but I think I find that refreshing. And in a world in which there's this increasing kind of interference by PR people, that machine continues to grow. And like, I thought it was staggeringly large and difficult to manage when I started my career. And now it's just like, I don't know, tripled since then, quadrupled. And also like legal interference. We have Dave. Oh my God. I don't know if it's Enrich or Enric. So let's, I'm not going to finish that part of that sentence. (laughs) I've never said his name out loud. Anyway. And we have a book coming out. My my friend Dave at the Times has written a book about the kind of increasing role of law firms in our society and the way that they broker power, intermediate things that we don't see. And I think that's so important and definitely something that we all need to talk more about. Well, as a reformed lawyer myself, I've seen it up close where the amount of control, even just the threat of obfuscation and delay just changes Mm -hmm. the dynamic and the business around everything, even at the media level. And then, and then the disintermediation of the media itself creates all sorts of risks where the law firm, you know, it's, it's either no or it depends and it's probably no with the answer to everything. And so your point's well taken there. So let's get dive into Bill's background a little bit, or maybe let's call it his early years. I think of Bill Gross and I think Duke, we both went there, and that's probably where the similarities end. He <laughs> served in the Navy, a gifted card counter and card player, stamp collector, and a provoker of neighbors. And all of those <laughs> all of those descriptors completely and ignore more. the fact that he built an unbelievably successful active management bond business. What amongst those things struck you as particularly formative or interesting? I mean, he's a bond vivant with all those different things going on. So that's interesting in and of itself. But what about that? Did you look at it and sort of look, see when you were writing the book and say, wow, that's, that's an interesting factor that makes up the whole thing, but maybe stood out? I like his consistency. And I think that makes him really interesting where he gets a strategy that's, you know, often kind of above and beyond, like better than the next person's strategy, and he sticks to it. 
And that shows up in card counting. That shows up in his media strategy and his investment outlooks that people loved and read every month. And, you know, they're still coming out, so still do. And obviously in investing, right? And trading and kind of arbitraging various things in the market and finding ways to embed leverage in ways that other people didn't come up with. So I think all of those things, like this also shows up in his stamp collecting, where he kind of individually financialized stamp collecting. He started kind of mapping the price performance of like the value of different stamps and charting them across different auction results over time. And I don't think a lot of other people are doing it in that way. I think a lot of other stamp collectors are like, I like this stamp. This is a valuable stamp. I want an inverted Jenny. But Bill Gross is like, oh, this has appreciated, you know, faster than the S&P over this time horizon. And I really think that there's more room to run, you know, like who does that? So that consistency is pleasing to me. Like, I think that's really nice. And I think it's interesting. And I also think he, this is sort of not answering your question, but a lot of times when people are telling me about their investment strategies, they don't make any sense. Or they're like thin or flimsy in some way where they're like, I like this stock, it's going to go up or whatever. The manager's nice. And you're like, okay, okay, great. I'm glad you're you're making a bet based on that. That's uh, that's yeah. Or I'm sure they have a, you know, they're like, oh, the EBITDA, like the management is proven. I don't, whatever words that it's just not something that I, that makes any sense to me. It seems incredibly subjective and not very, I don't know. I'm like, okay, good luck. Like call me later. Let me know how it goes. Bill's investing is not at all like that. His team, of course, you know, makes calls on various individual credits, but Bill says people want to sleep at night so they're willing to overpay for the insurance that I'm willing to sell them. That makes sense to me. That's replicable. That's, you know, a robust that like that just makes so much more sense to me and I can get my head around it in a way that like this management team is good is never going to make sense to me. So I think that I found that that really interesting and that's, you know, that's his kind of consistent worldview. He has this kind of game theory view that I just found really compelling. One of the things, we'll get to this in a second, but when he started out, I mean, he really, as my understanding of fixed income goes, I mean, he went from the world was buy and hold in the very, very early stages of his career and sort of his idea of trading in and out of bonds and trading around them using different tools like options and derivatives and forwards, et cetera. That was, let's call it semi-revolutionary. You know, I think around that time, you had Michael Milken sort of figuring out the high yield world. You had the Louis Ranieri's and et cetera coming up with mortgage-backed securities and their active management. This critical mass was developing of which he was a very important part of it. What was that sandbox he was playing in as he was getting his career going? So you really described it very well. I think that the beginning of active bond management, you know, the very, very early days, it was sort of corporate credit oriented. But Bill and PIMCO and, you know, Chris Dialanis at PIMCO, they were very early to, as you say, futures, derivatives, mortgages. And these ended up being kind of areas where PIMCO, Bill, Chris, were able to figure out ways to take a lot more risk, but in a kind of informed way, in a, a smart way that was you know, not just a a risky blind bet. So I think the sandbox, the whole game that they really mastered was looking at the sandbox that you're playing in, right? Which is total return, which is bonds, which is, you know, the world that, you know, Bill basically built this or helped to invent this fund structure of total return. But once you have that benchmark, once you're in a total return fund and you're competing against a benchmark and a universe of peers and you know what they're doing, the whole game is to expand your sandbox. So if everyone else is investing in basically what the benchmark is, 
all you have to do is look at that and be like, all right, I'm going to dial up my mortgage allocation because I know I'm going to reliably get a little bit more and everyone else poorly understands negative convexity and these other things that I understand and I'm happy to embrace that risk. I'm going to just drizzle a little bit more futures over here. I'm just going to embed a little bit more leverage. I'm going to exploit the difference between cash and cash equivalents. I'm going to exploit the kind of beautiful time elements in forward settling things and just generate a little bit extra yield in there. And those are the things that will help to generate that performance over time. So basically his sandbox was just whatever everyone else is doing, plus a little bit. How did he think about technology in terms of getting an informational edge in his portfolio? Or was that, he doesn't strike me as sort of a computer programmer type and diving in and doing all that stuff. Was that a big part of PIMCO? It is to an extent. Yeah. I mean, I think they had folks at PIMCO who very early on were, were programmers and did build a lot of robust systems. Frank Rabinovich and Dave Eddington come to mind. Dave doesn't show up in the book at all, which is sort of an egregious omission in my view, but he was a, a major, I don't know, portfolio manager, generalist and contender, you know, as an heir to Bill Gross in, in the 90s. But the idea that, you know, he wasn't a per- like he still loves new stuff. The thing that helps him stay at the front of the pack for so long was this ability to embrace new stuff as it came out. So, you know, maybe that's Twitter. He was very, I think, pretty early to being like on Twitter and pretty good at it. You know, he's not like in the replies or whatever, but he absolutely took to that. And, you know, the investment outlook thing that he started, he sending out these missives every month, that was kind of an innovation. And then that translates also to, you know, new financial products. So they were always sort of attuned to what's new and what's out there. And that's, you know, from like an internet perspective, but also from just a literally anything perspective. <laughs> well, one of the things, it's as a pet theory, unproven, and I'm sure I'm saying Love something. Love it, exciting. Uh, saying something that he would, you know, he may press the nukes and aim it at my apartment, is the fact that I think he spent really good calories on credit research and the individual names and the individual components of his portfolio bottom up. And then when he was making macro calls, and I use example, it is the example interest rates, the fact that he scaled so large and was such a market participant, in some sense, he got insider information about where things were going from a macro perspective, i.e. a conversation with a Fed chairman or something like that where, oh, you know, we may raise rates 25 basis points because I've never met a fixed income manager that can accurately predict those things with any degree of consistency. And so the really good ones, or let's say the long-term consistent good ones, index that out. They don't spend any time on that. They tell their client, if interest rates go up or down, this is what's going to happen to the portfolio. But they spend 95% of their time on the credit research and the underpinning components of, I guess it's sort of bottom-up research on their portfolios. And they make sure that when they're benchmarking their portfolio, they're doing it to a duration that if they stay within a few basis points of it here or there, they're never going to get in trouble. Do you think that holds with Bill or was he gifted at calling macro trends above and beyond what other people were able to do? It's an interesting question. And one thing I want to say before I actually answer is that there's a lot of, I don't want to say inside information, but like the structure of credit research also lends itself to a good look through into the future where in a way that I think is maybe underappreciated. So it's very normal in corporate and in government bonds where, you know, the finance minister or the CFO will come meet with big bondholders and say, 
here are our financing needs for the next blah, blah, blah. And like, these are normal conversations. And so you at PIMCO, you're going to obviously get that meeting. You might get it first because you demand it. And you're going to know basically, okay, this company has an enormous lug of bonds coming. We want to sell out of the existing and, you know, get in line for the new issue, which is to say first in line. So you're saying, you know, this is helpful for their forecasting and interest rate trends. And that's, I'm sure, to some extent true. But I think it's also super applicable in the credit space where their size does help that sort of on a micro level, individual issuer level, it's the same thing. And I think that that is, I've never seen that quantified anywhere as like a return generator, nor have I really seen the new issue pop quantified. But those things I think are super real and are absolutely places where PIMCO's dominance is is beneficial and and literally fruitful in, in basis points. In terms of Bill's forecasting for rate direction, I mean... In some sense, it doesn't matter, right? Where he just had a bajillion bonds and bonds went the right way for a long time. So that's the argument that I hear a lot that Bill was just lucky. And I think he was very lucky and I think he would say so too and has said so. But I think on top of that, I think it was actually less that he was good at forecasting rates and more of these market inefficiencies that he spotted, those kind of replicable, you know, the Lambda cash stuff and selling volatility and, you know, duration mark. Like, I think that those were more fruitful than the interest rate calls. The interest rate call basically had to be for 40 years, it's going down, (laughs) right? Like yields are falling. So that was kind of like, it almost was irrelevant what his opinion was, except you do see in, you know, 2011 where he did get that wrong. So, and there was a study in 2019 that came out that showed that he actually kind of had a, he kind of didn't lean in when he had a view on rates and and he like wasn't quite right to time these factors that he was exploiting. So I'm not sure that that's actually exactly the case. I mean, certainly it was his brand and certainly people look to him for interpretation of Fed policy and moves and yada, yada. And I think that he is absolutely more insightful than, you know, the next guy on interest rates and direction. But he also has been calling for the end of a bull market in bonds for like 30 years. Right. So <laughs> yeah. No, and, and and every other fixed income manager has too. Exactly. Exactly. To the extent I was exposed to it more on the municipal bond side and like, well, interest rates have to go up at some point. Wrong, 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 yeah. wrong. Oh, I wrote an article in 2010 that was like, how much lower can they go? It's at 3%. And I'm like, so <laughs> embar- like, I don't know why I just told you that because I really want to bury the memory. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take us through the 2008 bet when Bill really capitalized on the mortgage-backed security issue. What, what, what did he see and how did he capitalize on it? So he and Paul McCauley and the mortgage team at PIMCO all kind of saw, and and I should say the corporate credit teams as well. So they saw that homeowners had bought houses that basically, for whatever reason, structural, societal, like lending malpractice, there were a thousand different reasons, but you know, people had houses and mortgages that were too large for their finances. They weren't going to be able to make the next payment. They weren't going to be able to sell the house to the next person for a higher price. And, you know, they saw this early and they were able to structure around it. So they ramped down how much risk they took, you know, sort of across the board in mortgage-backed securities, in, you know, buying junk bonds or not. And that was very painful for a while, for a couple of years where, or months where they were basically sitting out this enormous rally that kept going and going and going. And then when things finally started to turn, they were much better positioned than their peers to say, okay, this is falling. We still think it's a good credit. Things are going to work out fine for this company. We're going to buy this security from this person who's absolutely panicking because, you know, Lehman fell or whatever. And they were able to scoop up a lot of things added down in that way. And the thing about this that I think is is clever is it's not 
it wasn't one of those like big short trades that's like fun to talk about in the media, but is incredibly risky and keyed so tightly to the timing of things not working out where you're betting on your own ability to time the market. And personally, find that terrifying. I think one of Howard Marks's number one rules is never try to time the market. And, you know, that should be all of our number one rules. But I think PIMCO did that. PIMCO avoided calling it. You know, Bill has a couple of times where he did call it. And he was like, this is it. This is the topic. No, 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 that wasn't it. Okay, this is it. And that's kind of the game that we all play. But I think PIMCO's structural approach here was a lot, a lot more informed and a lot more cautious. So he's riding a wave, he's managing a ton of money, and he's out on the West Coast enjoying things. When did things start to go wrong? And what hastened his eventual exodus out of the firm? So I think it's twofold. I think there's the investing side and then the business side. And the investing side, you know, he had such a great track record and then had this big misstep in 2011, which he apologized for. And then he had another big misstep in 2013. So a lot of people had a hard time in 2013, if you recall, it was the taper tantrum, but PIMCO did not fare well. And, you know, outflows were worse from PIMCO funds than others. And it was kind of a tough time. And when you have that kind of market performance problem at PIMCO, at every finance firm, but at PIMCO in particular, I think, you know, you lose your credibility in the room. If you're trying to say, hey, I think this is a good trade. Everyone's like, I'm sorry, are you talking? Like, why are you? (laughs) What did you have something to say? Like, you just don't. No one's going to listen to you. They've been trained for decades to hunt that kind of weakness and like be mean to that person. So that applies to Bill Gross. And of course, Bill's as hard on himself as he is on everyone else. So but I think that that kind of culture, you know, his credibility was undermined internally by that to some extent. And then the flip side, you know, the kind of business side of this is, Muhammad Alarian left at the beginning of 2014, you know, citing family reasons, but also it had been increasingly difficult to navigate the management of PIMCO where he was getting in kind of, he was tired of cleaning up Gross's messes, he said at one point. He he was frustrated from, in his view, Bill Gross flip-flopping on various things that they'd agreed on and then Bill would say he didn't agree to it. It was just increasingly intolerable for Muhammad Alarian. So he left. And that would have been fine, except that it ended up being kind of messy, where there was like a Wall Street Journal article that came out a month later that everyone stopped what they were doing to read. It was this enormous like terminal at the top of PIMCO. It was dramatic. It portrayed Bill as this kind of nasty guy who was petty and vindictive and arrogant, yada, yada. And that was, I think, very destabilizing for Bill Gross to have this new view of him in the in public, which tarnished the image he'd worked so hard to build over the decades. And also that his, you know, kind of enemy at that point, Muhammad Alarian was like getting the better treatment in media was very aggravating for him. So I think all of that created a situation where Bill Gross couldn't let go. He was locked into this mental state of needing to find the moles who had leaked to the journalists. He needed to, you know, exact retribution on the people who had leaked, on Muhammad Alarian, on all of and it. And it became kind of an emotional thing. And the rest of PIMCO's management is just increasingly like, what is even going on? Why is this happening? We can't do our jobs. So, and at the same time, going back to the investing world, the kind of young guns were doing better in the market than Bill Gross. So again, you have this this kind of these people coming up through the ranks and their funds are doing better. And at PIMCO, it's kind of like that leads, I think, where people are like, well, we're getting paid because of that guy. So I like him now. (laughs) What happened from a cultural standpoint? How did the firm run? Did it have sort of a 80s brokerage mentality (laughs) that didn't get fixed? Did Bill not mind the store with that? Was that any sort of contributing factor? 
Mm, not minding the store is a nice way to put it because I do think that he didn't think it was a bad culture and didn't think that it was something he needed to do anything about. I think the journal article was maybe the first time that he was like actually confronting that image of Pimco as being intense and, you know, scathing and hostile and whatever in a bad way. I think he, you know, and I'm, I'm a little bit projecting here, so I'm not sure what he would say, but I think, you know, it was always a tough place to work. It was always this, I don't know if broker culture is exactly right. It's like they liked Solomon Brothers and that was like, kind of not a model necessarily, but that was like the vibe, you know, but then with its own kind of personal intensity. And one person told me it was like wire brushing that they got from Bill and from others. And, you know, they were boys pulling wings off a fly is is one way that a person put it to me. And I think this kind of bullying culture, maybe that's consistent to some extent with the broker culture, but yeah, like what's the problem? Like, first of all, we're all just having a good time here. And this is like funny. And also if we're mean to each other, it's in service of good performance. Like if I'm being hard on you, I'm just being hard on your idea. I just want you to be your best self. And Bill would leave nice notes sometimes. It's funny. I talk to people who would receive these nice notes, you know, and they like keep them. They remember every time Bill Gross gave them like an A on their paper, basically. And they're like, no, he was really nice. So these occasional nice notes in the scope of these more than occasional scathing analyses or pop quizzes on what you're holding. Yeah, it was super intense. And I don't think that he saw that as a problem until everyone else decided to see it as a problem. Right. Do you have a sense of how Bill would sort of spend his time during his day? Yeah, at his desk. Yeah. I was, was going to say, leading, <laughs> leading to the point, was he distracted or have bad habits that took him away from watching over things? So he loved to not stop watching over things. He loved to, and by things there, I mean the market, right? So he wanted to be at his desk. He wanted to be monitoring the markets, trading, thinking about the credits and interest rate products and whatever, like what he should be doing. He did break for yoga or stationary biking or whatever, exercise for an hour a day. And he also had investment committee four days a week. So, you know, that's like a lot. He didn't like client meetings that much. He was perfectly affable with clients and clients loved him somewhat, obviously. But it wasn't like his jam. That's not what he wanted to be doing, like glad handing people and doing a little dance for them. But yeah, he liked his focus unbroken. He liked to be at his desk doing his work and not hear any disruptive sounds and not have people walk up to him and try to talk to him. You know, he liked to to be doing what he was doing. One of the things that I'm a big golfer and I know that, you know, he's a fixture at Pebble Beach and and has been a ardent amateur golfer. Yeah, he's good, I think, right? Yeah. Like really good. And how did that fit into things? I mean, was he using that as a as a way to sort of further the business or was that another one of his hobbies slash distractions that, that just made him the Bill Gross that we know of him today? I think more the latter. I don't think he was like a golf with your sales coverage kind of guy. He has golfing buddies. And I think that, you know, those buckets are separate. So he has been, you know, he's definitely stayed golfing in his retirement. But I do think it was a way for him to kind of blow off steam to focus on something that is challenging and that is, you know, a race against yourself kind of thing. You know, you're you're trying to make your own numbers better. So that obviously feels familiar. I think that it was a way to channel a lot of his frustrations or agita into something that was, you know, equally but differently aggravating. <laughs> And with dozens and dozens of variables to take into account, it probably fit exactly. his mind really well. Exactly. And I think, you know, his favorite piece of writing that he did was an intro about golf, a damnable game. <laughs> a damnable game. It's a famous quote. What is he doing now in retirement? 
golfing. He is also still trading. So he's trading basically his personal money, which is substantial and is not not what he was doing at Janus. You know, he had outside clients, but a, a good slug of that money at Janus was his own money. So he's just, you know, being Bill Gross. He traded some of the GameStop stuff. He says he made good money on it, some $10, $20 million. He's in my friend Spencer's book, The Revolution That Wasn't About GameStop. So that, you know, he's he's very engaged. He has views on everything. You know, you can read his investment outlooks as they come out on PR Newswire. In his personal life, and he's gone through a couple of divorces and different iterations around that, how much do you think that impacted his career? Or did he do a good job of compartmentalizing that part of his life, like maybe his other hobbies? I think he probably did a reasonable job of compartmentalizing. I think that's what he would say. And I don't know that I have enough evidence to refute that necessarily. So I think like in his later years, for sure, there's been a lot more tumult and volatility. And I think it's hard, you know, I don't have his like performance track record anymore. So I think much of that was post-retirement, certainly the feud with his neighbor. His second divorce was while he was still, yeah, it was when he was still at Janice. So it's hard to say. I think he definitely, in my view, he definitely had allowed his emotion to cloud his investing at Janus, but I actually consider that more his emotion from the PIMCO ouster, from his departure from PIMCO, than necessarily his divorce. But I don't know. You know, that's impossible for me to to have much of a view on. But he was married to to Sue for what, 30 years? And that's a lot of stability. And certainly those things are taxing when they're, you know, that's emotionally draining and literally like time, you know, that's expensive from a time perspective. So yeah, I mean, I guess his days were likely more crowded with that stuff and can probably safely say that he did not enjoy that chapter. So yeah, to some extent, I'm sure. Yeah. There's an MBA research paper hidden in there somewhere tracking the top 50 managers of all time and along and their marital with the, time, the timeline of their marital status. And I'd be interested yeah. to see who did worse. And I'm sure there are examples of people who did better. Uh, that maybe it helped them focus, that type of thing. So as we wind down here, in your final analysis, as you've seen sort of Bill Gross from a sort of a 360-degree view here, what do you take away from it as sort of this legend in the financial services space, flawed guy probably in different ways, very interesting in all sorts of ways with his hobbies, et cetera. What do you take away from it having gone through and written a book on it? Hmm. So one of the things that I think about a lot with Bill is that game theory perspective and how he gets a strategy. He discovers an an idea, a strategy, an inefficiency, whatever it may be, and sticks to it. And I find that really admirable. And this idea that if you just stick with it and kind of get through to getting the true odds and your strategy is good, you're going to win. It just takes patience and consistency. And I think that's kind of admirable. I think that's really admirable. So I like that. How do we find the book and what else are you working on? So the book is on, you know, bookshop.org, IndieBound, Amazon. It's at your local indie bookseller, which is hopefully where you will go buy it if you want. And yeah, I'm I'm working on Sleeping More and I'm a co-host at Planet Money on NPR. So we're always telling stories about finance and economics and trying to make them accessible for, you know, regular people and demystify the world around us. So that's been very fun. If anyone listening has an idea of a story that we should do. I have your email. I'll start pumping you with <laughs> tons of ideas. No, but please. Yeah. I will have all of that in our show notes as well. Any last thoughts on Bill Gross? So Bill, okay. We've talked about how he's reflective, how he was a psych major, all this stuff. But there's this weird tension that I've always found interesting with Bill where he's so self-aware and then he's not. And it's so curious to me because 
I mean, everyone is this way, right? We think that we know how we show up in the world or we're, maybe we're curious about it. Maybe, But I, for someone who spends so much time or who has such capacity to think about his psychology and everyone else's and the, the way those interact, I'm just so fascinated by the moments where he knows that he shouldn't do something and then he does it anyway. Because like, obviously I do that too sometimes. <laughs> Haven't we all like sent a tweet reply that we really want to delete? But I also think like, how do you manage that? How do you navigate that? Especially, you know, the world around you changes so much so quickly. And sometimes you have to respond to that, but other times you shouldn't. Where does your strategy that you need to be consistent about, where does that stop and the rest of the world start? You know, how do you know what parts to keep consistent and say, well, this has worked for me for 40 years. I'm not going to change it today because this random person's yipping at me. You know, like he had the same media strategy and it stopped working. So how do you how do you reconcile those? That's something I've been thinking a lot about. And that's anybody who is allocating money to a manager is asking that same question. What happens when the process stops working? And how do you know? Yeah. And the close cousin to that is all people commit folly at some point. And how do you predict that where possible? It's something that as people get more psychologically in tune with how the markets work and they start to realize more and more how that process goes about it just becomes more difficult and a bigger part of trying to predict the future of who the winners are going to be. And there are large amounts of pixels, ink, and dollars being used to try to figure that part out. So yeah, well, keep me posted if we get to any conclusions because I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> Excellent. Mary, this was so much fun. Thank I you. I want you really back was. on my podcast when you have your next thing, whatever it turns out to be, because this was great to speak with you. And congrats on the book. It's on all the major book selling platforms and I look forward to diving in even deeper on it and good luck. Thank you so much. This is a delight. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.